District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to CFACT.org. Thank you so much for listening to the show. I'm thrilled to be rejoined by Mark Oliva of the National Shooting Sports Foundation. He's going to update all of you, my listeners, about what is happening in shooting sports and even a little bit in hunting because there's a lot of moving parts, a lot of breaking news, and things that gun owners and shooting sports enthusiasts and general liberty lovers should be aware of. So, Mark, thank you again for coming back on the podcast to update my listeners as to what is happening with the NSSF and other moving parts relating to firearms policy. And Gabrielle, thank you so much for having us back on. It, it really is a treat to be able to to speak with you and to speak with your listeners and, and let them know what's happening from the firearm industry perspective. Absolutely. I think it's important. And I think people need to hear from industry representatives like yourself, even though you're in communications, to kind of see beyond the misconceptions that are wielded to the industry. So I'm grateful that you come on and, and bring that perspective on behalf of the different members and the organization as well. Obviously, one of the big centerpieces in the news realm right now is the nomination, or rather the current stalling for now, of ATF Director nominee David Chipman, who actually is having a very difficult time, even in the deadlock Senate, passing and possibly being moved to a full Senate vote. So that prompted the NSSF recently to, for the first time, invest in a big TV ad buy. Could you explain what was the motivation behind that and where specifically you are targeting, which senators you guys are targeting to have them vote against Chipman? Yeah, so uh, obviously the the National Shooting Sports Foundation has been opposed to the nomination of David Chipman for some time, uh, you know, since the president first announced it back in April in the Rose Garden. Um, And and for very easily understood reasons for anybody who's been following David Chipman, he is a paid gun control lobbyist. He he works for Gifford's Gun Control Group. Uh, He has advised Michael Bloomberg's uh, Every Town for Gun Safety. He's testified before Congress that he would ban the AR-15 style rifle or modern sporting rifle if he was allowed to do that. He's encouraged Congress to take up legislation to do that. He's lobbied Congress to do that. Uh, and he testified uh, before the Senate Judiciary Committee in his confirmation hearing that, uh, yes, he, he would twist the 1934 National Firearms Act to also incorporate uh, AR-15 or modern sporting rifles, uh, which would treat those the same way we treat suppressors and, and uh, short barrel rifles, short barrel shotguns, machine guns. Uh, and, and you would have to pay the $200 tax. You'd have to submit fingerprints, photos, get uh, chief law enforcement and would essentially put you on a government watch list. Anybody who owns a suppressor uh, knows this. They know that the ATF knows exactly where you live. They know exactly what you own. And and you're open for inspection when they want to be able to see that uh, as a considered a destructive device. Um, But with over 20 million uh, modern sporting rifles or AR-15 style rifles in circulation, this is an unacceptable proposition. And it creates a national registry, which has been, you know, kind of the goal of a lot of gun control. So they know exactly what guns you have, where you have them, and they can they can reach out and take those guns wherever they want. We've seen how this path can be very troublesome if we just look north and what's happening in Canada right now. This is this is the path of the future if someone like David Chipman's in charge. So because of some of those reasons, some of the other things, I mean, he said some outrageous remarks about uh, first-time gun buyers last year during the height of all the gun buying that's, that happened through 2020 and continues to happen now through 2021. Uh, he, he compared all those new gun buyers to Tiger King and uh, and advised them to hide their gun, unlock their gun, unload their gun, lock it up and hide it behind their cans of tuna and beef jerky, to paraphrase them. 
uh, and wait for the zombies to come. So, you know, he, he belittled them as, as zombie preppers. Um, and these were people who were buying firearms for concerns of their personal safety. Uh, as we saw that uh, police weren't able to respond to every 911 call. We saw that the calls defund police. We saw the violence that raged last summer. We see the violence that continues this summer and the crime rates that are soaring. And instead of uh, encouraging people to learn how to use their firearms safely, he, he belittled them and denigrated them. Um, he's, he's passed off false uh, you know, lies, essentially, about what happened in Waco. He, he's, he told people that helicopters were down by 50 cal rifles, and that it was just absolutely not true. And he recanted that in his uh, in the Senate confirmation hearing. But the fact is, is that he said it, and, and he said this when he was a gun control lobbyist, and he, he based that upon his service with a badge. Uh, so we we absolutely believe that David Chipman is untrustworthy. He is uh, he is not uh, capable of being able to uh, fulfill the mission of being an ATF director without politicizing that that bureau. And those agents already have a difficult enough time. And that's why we've been opposing him. But as we watched, uh, you know, the, the votes happen in the committee, and of course it was a deadlocked eleven eleven vote. Um, and, and we know that the Senate is split 50-50, uh, we started to do some polling in some of the key states with senators that we knew were going to be uh, having to make a, a, a very informed choice and have to weigh all the facts and who hadn't come out already and said where they stand on, on David Chipman. Uh, and some of those states include West Virginia, Maine, uh, Arizona, uh, Montana, um, and even New Hampshire. So we did some polling in even Pennsylvania as well. And, and we found that in all of those states, more than half, and somewhere in some of those states, including West Virginia, upwards of over two thirds of the voters uh, did not agree that uh, David Chipman should be running the ATF, should not be confirmed. And so we, we passed that information to those senators who hadn't made up their minds. Um, but as we're getting closer to a point where the Senate is going to have to do something with David Chiba, because his, his nomination is still stalled in the committee, either Senate uh, Leader uh, Schumer or, or uh, Senate Minority Leader uh, McConnell can discharge that vote. And as soon as it's discharged, um, then it has to go to the floor immediately for a vote. So we expect that that will be happening you know, sometime in the near future. But we wanted to reach out to those senators and, and, and make sure that they understood where their, their voters are on this issue. So we bought television advertising in West Virginia and in Maine, um, you know, particularly to make sure that Senator Manchin and Senator King understood where their voters are. Uh, Senator Capito and, and Senator Collins have both come out and, and said that they are not going to vote to confirm David Chipman. He's too divisive, and they believe he would politicize uh, the, the ATF, uh, and which would make it very difficult for those 5,000 agents to be able to do their job. Um, so we're, we're encouraging those voters in those states through those ads to reach out to their senators who are undecided and let them know exactly how they feel about it. Uh, and this is something that's important as part of our, our democratic system is that, you know, we, we elect people to represent our interests in Congress. Uh, so we're reminding them that, you know, you have the ability to reach out to your senator, make your voice heard, make sure your senator understands where you're at when this when this vote happens. Uh, and I just I've got to believe in my bones that uh, as as pro and as as much as West Virginians treasure their Second Amendment rights, uh, this is going to be a very uh, difficult thing for Senator uh, Hanson to go back to West Virginia and tell his voters, I, I voted for the guy who wants to ban the most commonly sold 
uh, rifle in America today. He will have a lot to answer for if he does proceed to vote for him. I think he indicated that he would support him or he's open to supporting him. You can correct me if I'm mistaken. But yeah, West Virginia, the population there seems to be very differently minded when it comes to Manchin's inclinations. And we've seen that a little bit with his environmental work as well. He's kind of a wild card, so he will be certainly someone to pay attention to. But also, did some other ATF employees rebuke Chipman? I think I saw there were some previous ones under Republican administrations and even some Democrat ones. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is that true? He, he He's even met been met with opposition from some fellow ATF yes. employees. So former acting director Tom Sullivan uh, wrote an op-ed uh, that basically said the same thing that we've been saying is that he is unqualified to lead this department, to lead this federal agency. Uh, that he is too divisive. He is. Uh, he's. He doesn't come with the with the leadership perspectives that he needs. You need to understand. David Chipman never held uh, a significant leadership position within the within the ATF. He was an assistant special agent in charge of a field division. He never led a field division. Uh, he never led anything in the Washington D.C. headquarters. He he was a special agent in charge there, but he did not have a division that he was leading. He never held executive leadership positions. Um, so, you know, the way we look at this is, is there's a, a lot of people that the, the administration could have chosen to lead this, uh, this bureau, and they, they overlook some of those people, who, to include the acting director right now, Marvin Richardson, an African-American man who has over 32 years of law enforcement experience. Most of that with the ATF has held leadership positions at every level in the ATF, and, and they chose instead to nominate the white man over the black man who has been doing the job for years and which says something about the administration that's supposed to pride itself on being very progressive. So it's, it's interesting to watch this. There have been other, um, other uh, former agents who have uh, spoken to media on background. Um, I think many of those are choosing to, to keep uh, their names out of the news. Uh, and this is, it's not atypical. The ATF is not, known for being a political uh, organization. They're a law enforcement regulatory uh, bureau, uh, and they really try to stay out of politics, uh, which makes this nomination so troubling because David Chipman is nothing but political and, and would turn the ATF into a bludgeon against the firearm industry. And that's exactly what Vice President Harris and President Biden said uh, during the campaigns, that they would use the ATF to shut down retail, shut down manufacturers for even minor clerical errors. So if they have a misplaced decimal point in their acquisitions and, and disposition books, that could be cause uh, to shut them down instead of what happens currently, which is a uh, correction. They'll, they'll issue uh, correction during the inspection process and make sure that they're able to keep their books straight. So we're very concerned about this nomination. And it would be, I think there would be a lot of uproar if let's say the tables were turned, it was a, let's say the Trump administration or another Republican administration, and they picked up a NRA lobbyist or even an NSSF lobbyist to head up the ATF. So they would be screaming bloody murder if it was the shoe on the other foot. Uh, but it's interesting when it's one yeah. of their own when it's one of their own, oh no, he's perfect and there's no conflict of interest. And and also I think obviously Senator Kelly has a conflict of interest because he worked with his wife's group Giffords. You're exactly right. Uh, Senator Kelly is the co-founder of Giffords and, yes. and, and David Chipman still collects a uh, paycheck from Giffords as their uh, senior lobbyist. So there is certainly a conflict of interest. And, and this has been pointed out by uh, the legislature in Arizona. 
you've had the state senators uh, take to the floor there and say that the, the, he needs to recuse himself from this vote. I don't expect that he will. Um, but this is something he needs to answer for. And I think this is something that Attorney General Bernovich is, uh, has taken note of as he's launching his own campaign uh, to challenge him in 2022. So uh, I think that there are things that, uh, that Senator Kelly's going to have to answer for that, uh, you know, smacks of a little bit of nepotism when it comes to this issue. Rightfully so. We will see if that happens. Let's move on to another topic. Also, pretty big news. Your organization announced that you or you will sue Governor Cuomo of New York after he tweeted that he wants to allow civil lawsuits by municipalities against the firearms industry for criminal actions by non-associated third parties. I'm reading this from the NSSF website for those who think I just pulled this out of my hat. But he essentially wants to kind of counter the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act. This is a typical tactic when it comes to obfuscating, let's say, their duties and trying to keep the public safe. They want to find a scapegoat. And the convenient scapegoat now with a lot of people like Governor Cuomo is gun manufacturers. And this is kind of similarly echoing President Biden's intent to repeal the protection of lawful commerce and arms act as well. Could you guys speak to this lawsuit? Have attorneys generals also signed on as well? What could be the implications of this if this were to be implemented? Yeah. So we're actually in the very early phases. So uh, as soon as the governor put his name to the legislation, uh, we announced that we would be challenging this. So we're in the initial stages of, uh, of challenging this law, uh, which is blatantly unconstitutional. The Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act was passed with a wide bipartisan majority uh, in both chambers, in, in both the House and the Senate, and of course, was signed into law by uh, President Bush. Um, it's interesting to note that there are sitting senators, Democratic senators, uh, or caucus with the Democrats who voted for this when they were members of the House. So um, it, this this law has been upheld by courts across across the country uh, by appellate courts. Uh, it has been found to be constitutional every time it's challenged. Um, so it is a sound law, and and uh, this law that. Uh, Governor Cuomo signed would essentially try to punch a hole right to the middle of the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act. So now you have a conflict between state law and federal law, which of course is going to uh, have to be resolved by the courts as to which one is constitutional and, and which one is is worth uh, going after. But it's important to note, uh, Professor Victor Schwartz literally wrote the book on tort law. Uh, his his books that he's written on this are are the case studies and the case books that are that are taught in law schools uh, and they talk about uh, you know what are the legal foundations for holding somebody responsible for malpractice or for uh, for negligence of a product. When we start talking about the protection of lawful commerce and arms act and this new law, this public nuisance law that that Governor uh, Cuomo has signed, uh, what he's trying to do is hold. Uh, you know, kind of a little bit gibberish there, but a little hold non-associated third parties uh, responsible. He wants to take the actions of those people and hold the manufacturers responsible for those. So what we're talking about is a criminal. This will be honest about this. Somebody who misuses a firearm in a criminal manner is a criminal, uh, commits a crime, and he wants to say that it's a manufacturer, a retailer, a distributor who is responsible for that crime. Well, it just doesn't make any sense. And, and that's what Professor Schwartz has argued in op-eds, and that's what he's argued uh, uh, in his case books uh, that he's written. Uh, Professor Turley, uh, 
who is uh, obviously from George Washington University, has also written about this before. And he's actually not a fan of the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act because he believes it's unnecessary. Um, he, he understands that uh, none of these cases survive any kind of challenge. And that was what was happening in the early 1990s or in the mid-1990s and the early 2000s when there was a spate of these cases uh, being brought up by municipalities and by uh, by others, uh, prompted by the NAACP and some others, uh, to, to gather up together and, and sue the fire manufacturers. Interestingly, um, Governor Cuomo at the time was the HUD secretary uh, under President Clinton, and uh, he was quoted by the Cato Institute uh, for saying that uh, the whole point of this wasn't necessarily to arrive at a legal action, but was to bleed the industry dry by a death of a thousand cuts. He wanted to tie manufacturers up in the courts uh, and, and just hurt them through legal costs to a point where it's untenable and they would give up. And that's why the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act was signed, because Manufacturers haven't gone to courts to defend these, and all these cases were thrown out time after time after time. None of these cases that were brought up in the 90s or the early 2000s were successful. The last case that was actually brought up was in New York City, and it was it was brought by uh, disgraced Attorney General Ellie Spitzer. Uh, and that case was, of course, thrown out as well. Uh, and then, of course, the 2005 PLCAA was signed into law. So what we what we believe is that you know the law that the the governor has signed is unconstitutional. It runs in contravention to any understanding of tort law, uh, and, and it runs counter to the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act. And knowing that the courts have continuously upheld PLCAA as constitutional, uh, we, we believe that this is kind of a slam dunk when it comes to deciding whether or not a public nuisance lawsuit could survive. The idea that you could sue a manufacturer for the criminal actions of someone who uh, wrongfully, negligently, and criminally misused a firearm is preposterous. Firearms are legal products. You can own them. You have a right to own them. Uh, and someone who misuses that product needs to be held responsible for their for their crime or their negligence. Um, so what this kind of amounts to would be the same thing as if, you know, someone was going to try to sue Ford and Budweiser for the damages caused by drunk drivers. Well, Ford didn't tell that person to drink and get behind the wheel, and Budweiser didn't tell that person to drink and get behind the wheel. And the manufacturers certainly aren't telling people to go out and commit crimes. In fact, the manufacturers uh, whom we represent are party to the uh, safety programs that we have to make sure that firearms stay out of the hands of those people who should never have them. Uh, so we've been doing our part, and instead of wanting to come alongside us and work on the same kind of uh, shared ideas, uh, we have a governor who wants to instead, uh, you know, shift the blame over and, and distract from some of his own, uh, you know, scandals and, again, blame guns. And this is nothing new for, for the Cuomos. This is, this is something that happens quite often. So we look at, you know, Governor Cuomo right now is, of course, uh, still battling uh, the ideas or, or the or the allegations that uh, you know he he mishandled the COVID pandemic and he is responsible for the death of thousands of seniors uh, and of course the the allegations of sexual harassment I think of up to a dozen of his own staffers and the allegations that he had his own staffers write his personal book on on state time and he's profiting off of that so instead of answering those questions of course he turns and blames guns. Uh, which plays well to his base, uh, but again, uh, will not survive when it's uh, brought up in the legal challenge. So we look forward to seeing him in court. The unfortunate part is, is this is going to cost New York taxpayers uh, the legal fees. So when when this is uh, struck down as, as unconstitutional, 
uh, they'll be forced to pay not only the state's legal fees, but they'll be forced to, to reimburse the legal fees of the fire ministry that uh, challenges these. Yes, a lot to unpack. And it seems like a typical deflection method we see with a lot of anti-gun Democrats is whenever they're caught up or embroiled in controversy, they move to gun control as a way to placate themselves and insulate themselves from further criticism. I don't think it's going to work. People still have memories and they they remember different things. But I wanted to go back to your point briefly on immunity before we move on to yeah. uh, the story about San Jose becoming kind of the first in the nation to require people to buy gun insurance. But I was reading through a law firm from Richmond, Virginia, Williams Mullins, and I had cited this in my piece that I did on the PLCAA. And they had said and claimed that do gun manufacturers really have blanket immunity from lawsuits? No, not even close. And they explained briefly there are like five or six exceptions to the rule with that. So I'll link to that in the show notes. But Cuomo's claim in his tweet saying that it's the only industry with immunity is patently false. I'm surprised he was not fact-checked. I don't think Glenn Kessler of WAPO is really keen on these issues. It would be interesting to see a fact-check there or from PolitiFact, but they probably are not familiar with PLCAA and probably personally support efforts to sue gun manufacturers. So I think it's really interesting that people actually read kind of legal precedent and, and legal information out there saying that gun manufacturers can be held liable in very certain circumstances, not obviously for frivolous lawsuits, but if they are found to be negligible and contributing to different criminal acts. But most of the industry does not do this. I would say 99, 99.9% of the industry does not partake in this, uh, this type of criminal behavior. So I think people just have to read that and know that. But yeah, but I, I think it's yeah, yeah it's important to note on on this little immunity claims. Actually, I mean, President Biden has been fact checked when he's tried to pass off the same bogus claims. Uh, uh, Politifact, uh, Washington Post, uh, FactCheck.org, uh, even CNN. They fact checked him. They fact checked Hillary Clinton when she tried to say the same thing in 2015, and they've said that it's patently false. Uh, so it's been proven even by you know liberal news outlets that this is untrue. Uh, and, and and it's easily to point to this. Remington was sued for a defective trigger, uh, and they were held to account for that. Um, so it happens. And, you know, if there's if there's negligence or there's uh, you know a, a defect in design, then yes, they can be held. And certainly, the firearm industry is the only one that enjoys any kind of protection that's you know similar to this. If we look across what's happening in America today, everyone who's receiving a COVID shot is receiving a COVID shot from a pharmaceutical company that enjoys protections. Those, those have been given special protections uh, to develop those vaccines and distribute those vaccines and put those vaccines in everyone's arm uh, with special protections provided by the federal government. And it's not just pharmaceuticals. The airline industry provides, it gets similar uh, protections. Um, and even tech, uh, you know, if we look at uh, some of the controversy that goes around with Google and Facebook and and Alphabet and then the, some of these other tech companies, they all enjoy the special protections uh, under the law that are provided by the federal government. So we're not uh, we're not unique in this sense in, in any any concept, way, shape, or form. Uh, and this is again, it's, it's a great talking point, and it sounds good when they can rattle it off. But no one is challenging them on this uh, when the governor says it. But it has been challenged when President Biden has said it. So. Um, yeah, it just doesn't hold up under the light of law. If you were able to survive the hour plus rambling of Governor Cuomo uh, <laughs> shouting, shouting at everybody about how evil the gun industry is, you will notice he made no mention whatsoever at any point 
of holding criminals accountable for their actions. He wanted to hold you know, the industry accountable for the actions of criminals whom we have no association with. And even the, the FBI's uh, reports, the Department of Justice reports rather from the Bureau of Justice Statistics shows that over 90% of uh, convicted felons who use a firearm in their crime admit to getting that firearm through illicit means, either through the black market or through having it stolen or through gang affiliation. They're not going into a firearm retailer and buying this with a background check like you and I am because they're not going to pass it. They know it. No. Uh, so so again, this is it's a bogus claim to say that the firearm industry is is part and parcel to the to the criminal activity. Um, you know, and we can see this. We saw reports over this past week, you know, especially from Chris Hayes on that trying to tie the rise in gun uh, purchasing with the rise in crime. And it was actually kind ludicrous. of ludicrous. Yeah, it's kind of the opposite. You know, people who saw that they were going to have to provide for their own safety were buying firearms because they saw crime rising. Uh, yes. you know, those weren't going out there to buy a gun, pass a background check, invest their hard-earned money into a firearm, and then saying, okay, now I'm going to go commit a crime. Violate laws. Yeah, so now I can lose all my freedoms. It's, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a ludicrous idea on its face. Um, but uh, I, I never put it beyond uh, those who, you know, pander to the gun control crowd to, you know, try to make these very wild claims and try to connect very, connect dots that are very far apart. You'd think with all the higher education they invested in, and I think Chris Hayes went to a very prestigious university, you'd think he'd have some critical thinking skills. I unfortunately don't believe he has any, especially on this issue, uh, because he he doesn't seem to have a depth of knowledge uh, to this. He, he certainly seems to be an advocate for gun control and greatly ignores the facts. And when it comes to immunity and trying to blump criminals with law-abiding gun owners. We see this in this very historic, but not in a good way, case that unfolded in San Jose where the mayor, Sam Licardo, and his city council unanimously passed a program which would institute two new things. It would require gun owners to buy insurance for gun ownership and also mandate that they pay a fee to offset any costs from criminal activities. What are the implications that stem from this? I think before on air, you and also Matt Manda, also of NSSF, you guys had written a blog post saying that it almost amounts to a poll tax too. What are the implications that stem from this? Does this stand in the court of law? Is this going to be easily challenged? I see it honestly as a discriminatory practice and it goes against trends. It goes against public opinion, shifting in favor of gun ownership from the different statistics that you guys have put out there of the nearly almost 9 million gun owners, new gun owners that were witnessed last year. It seems to be so out of main step and deflect from actually tackling crime it would waste police resources to, in my view, uh, especially since there have been what $63 million in damages relating to violent crime perpetrated by criminals using firearms. And it seems like it's not really an innovative approach, despite him claiming otherwise. So unpack what happened in San Jose for my listeners, Mark, if you can. Yes. Yeah. So unfortunately there was that, uh, there was that murder that happened in the rally in San Jose and it was shocking and it was horrific that happened. Um, so in response to this, uh, the, the mayor, of course, came out and said that this was an issue of, of gun owners across the board. So painting everyone with a very broad brush for the criminal actions of, of a deranged individual. Um, 
And so the answer to this that they came up with was, well, now we'll require everyone to have insurance if they're going to be a gun owner. Um, and, and, uh, and you have to pay a tax if you're going to be a gun owner as well. And the idea was that the tax would um, offset any kind of cost that the city incurs uh, for uh, taking care of victims of gun violence, so-called gun violence, which is criminal activity. Um, and again, so what we're looking at is shifting the blame to those who obey the law, who abide by the law, uh, for the criminal actions of those who have no um, understanding or no care for what the law is and have no issue with preying upon innocent lives. So, like you said, this really comes down to a poll tax. There's no other fundamental right that they would say, okay, you can exercise this right, but you have to pay this fee to do it. You can exercise your right to free speech, but you have to pay us first before you can do that. That would be unheard of. You can read this newspaper when you can write a letter to the uh, to the editor or you could express your opinion, but you have to pay to do that first. That would be unacceptable. The idea of voting, and we call this, you know, again, the poll tax, because that, uh, that was struck down as unconstitutional, is that you are requiring Americans to pay to go into the voting booth. Well, the same thing. You're requiring them to pay to exercise their Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms. That is a right that is granted to you by your creator. It's not granted to you by the government. It's not granted to you by the Constitution or the Bill of Rights. It is protected by the Bill of Rights. It tells the government what it cannot do. Uh, this is your right inherent by your creator. Uh, so it is... Uh, it is something we believe is unconstitutional, uh, and I think it's going to be something that's going to be easily defeated when challenged in court. Innovative. Uh, they say it's innovative because it's the first in the nation, but it's not a new idea. Other states have considered this before. Other legislators have brought it up, uh, and, and it has been you know tossed aside because it was an untenable position. There's no way that they could go do it. I, I'm, I don't think that my insurance carrier has a gun owner policy that would protect me for being a gun owner. And, and again, when we start to talk about what would the risk of that be, uh, I think that you know the, the cost of that, despite what uh, the mayor says, would be minimal. I, I don't believe it would. So uh, I don't see that this survives any kind of legal challenge. But again, this shows the level and the lengths to which uh, you know the gun control crowd will go to to shift the blame over and put the blame on the hands of those who have nothing to do with the crimes that are being committed. And instead of doing the hard work that's required to hold criminals accountable for their actions, prevent crimes from happening. Uh, they are going back to uh, blaming uh, those who have nothing to do with it. If we look at California's law, I mean, they've got some of the strictest laws in the, in the country when it comes to Indeed. Gun. Universal background checks. I don't care who, how you get a gun, you have to pass a background check to get that gun. Uh, you have to wait 10 days before that firearm can be transferred to make sure you have that cooling off period. Uh, you know, you you it is very difficult to get a concealed carry permit, depending upon what county you live in. Uh, so uh, and we've seen that there have been uh, issues and problems with uh, some patronage that has been happening in some of those counties where only a select few who are very well connected are getting their concealed carry permits. You don't have the ability to open carry in California. You're restricted from owning AR-15s and standard capacity magazines. There's magazine restrictions. And, and now, of course, there's restrictions on, on the types of ammunition that you can use in California. So um, we see some, some, some of the most serious restrictions. And what this tells me is that all those gun laws that they've passed before are abject failures. Uh, so they've been telling us is that we just need this one more law and then we can fix this problem. We need just one more law and we fix this problem. What, what our lawmakers need to do is be serious about addressing the problem of crime, 
holding criminals responsible for those actions, empowering the police to protect our communities and, and serving the public uh, according to the oath which they swore. And also, we don't know how much the cost of insurance will be. They still haven't put out a number. And they said that if you aren't able to afford it, you'll have it waived, which is very generous of them. How lovely. <laughs> they want you to essentially have your rights be conditional on insurance. And I think we were talking beforehand, too. Is this going to exceed the average cost of a gun purchase? Because I think NSSF approximated that it's about $600 on average could ins- I mean, and, and we had talked before as well that insurance companies have conceded that there's no way to insure for illegal acts or criminal acts and, and, and force people to buy this coverage because if you're not responsible for the act, what's the point of coverage? Like it's meaningless and it does nothing to, to help people who are affected by different criminal violent acts or if they're murdered for some ghastly reason. And it just seems like the the costs will outweigh the benefits if you're looking from a purely economical standpoint. And it's going to price out so many people from firearms purchasing. And we've been trying, I think, those of us in media, those of you in the industry more, more directly, have been working really hard to shed the stigma that this is just a cookie cutter granola or like graham cracker type participation block that it's only white older males who participate in shooting sports. And we have shed that misconception. I've done my reporting work to ensure that that misconception is properly shedded and debunked. We see a lot more people, a lot more women, especially we see black Americans, we see Hispanics, Asians, especially too. everyone all across the board of different groups are purchasing firearms in mass. So this would completely set back kind of the gains made it would obviously go to show that uh, these kind of Democrat aligned politicians really don't care about the people they represent and they want to hinder their ability to purchase guns by creating these obstacles and this poll tax, in essence. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Gabrielle. It's, you know, it was interesting that uh, last week as well, there's an article that pointed out that San Jose is among the 10 wealthiest cities in America. So here you have a city that's in the heart of Silicon Valley uh, and you're passing a law that would put a tax on gun owners, which is, of course, probably not a big deal for those who are making millions every year, but I'm not making millions every year. And and your average American isn't making millions every year. They're making enough to pay the bills, to be able to put their kids through college, hopefully, and and be able to, you know, enjoy a, a, a satisfactory lifestyle. Um, but this is, again, like you say, buying a gun is not an inexpensive endeavor. It's an investment. And we saw that last year, of course, uh, you know, over 8.4 million people bought a gun for the very first time. But we saw there was a 58 percent increase of African-Americans who were buying guns in 2020 over 2019. At the same time, there was a 47 percent increase of Hispanic Americans. And at the same time, there was a 43 percent increase of Asian-Americans. So the, the pool of, of today's gun owner looks a whole lot less like me, a middle-aged white guy, and more like the rest of America because they are America. These are today's gun owners. And, and so when we start to look across that crowd and you start to look at some of the other overlapping demographics of that and, and how you know people are being able to afford this, um, you're starting to put a very uh, significant burden on some of the people who just want to exercise their right to keep and bear arms for the reasons of personal safety. And they're, they're going to try and price them out of that. And, and it is discriminatory uh, on its face to, to try and pass a law that would require uh, people to pay a, a tax and pay an insurance fee just because they want to exercise a right to keep themselves safe. There's no way that that could stand in a court. 
I think with the different uh, First Amendment violations that would incur, I mean, are there there are lawsuits so far? I I, I don't think I've seen any, but I have no doubt certain organizations are already filing lawsuits to challenge this. And even though some have passed in various different blue states in Rhode Island, I think Hawaii, New York, California, they've never actually been implemented. So this could be for show and a symbolic kind of gesture, but if it actually could be implemented without any court challenges, I don't know, because even with San Jose being the way it is politically, um, I think a lot of local gun owners, and there are quite a bit, I think, what was there? 1.2 million new or 1.2 million guns purchased in California last year. Is that correct? I, I think yeah. there was a, a large share of people. And I don't know how much of that was concentrated in San Jose or Silicon Valley, but it, it seems to me that this would not pass the test of muster in a court and also in the, in the court of public opinion as well. I, I don't see this passing, but maybe I'm biased and I'm trying to be optimistic seeing trends, <laughs> but who but knows? It's kind of the point to what you're going to, though. I mean, our legislators should not be writing laws that they can't enforce. They're wasting our time. They're wasting our money. And and it, it defies logic and defies uh, a legal challenge that if you're going to write a law that you can't enforce, then then it is a, a, a law that's null and void on its face if you, if you can't enforce that law. So they're, they're talking about enforcing this when they say, oh, when we catch somebody. Uh, so how are they going to catch somebody? And again, there's no blanket registry of firearms in uh, California. I can't be sure about San Jose, the city itself, um, but you don't have to register every firearm in California. You have to register handguns, I believe. Uh, so this would now require a registry. Uh, so is the mayor going to send people out like census takers and knock on doors and ask to see how many guns and see your tax receipts for those guns? Have you paid your city tax on that? Uh, so this this really smacks of Big Brother and 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 is very cause for concern for those who really treasure their civil liberties because it's not just an infringement on your on your Second Amendment rights it's an infringement on your privacy rights as well and and possibly when they start to look around it's an infringement upon uh, your protections against illegal search and seizure so it'll be interesting to see how this shakes out. Yeah, I will be really curious to see if it stands. Or if it gets shut down and, and people make a big stink of it. And I also think law enforcement, hopefully we can hear from them in San Jose about their feelings because they're already kind of strapped and also ex uh, extended in their responsibility. So I don't think they want to tackle this sort of initiative and, and go around policing door to door and seizing guns from people who have nothing to do with crime at all. So I, I think we'll hear from them as well. Is there anything else that we should be aware of, even from the conservation perspective? Because I think people don't know that NSSF also does a lot with supporting conservation efforts with the different Pittman-Robertson funding mechanisms, supporting hunting, as well as shooting sports. Is there anything else to be aware of before we talk about National Shooting Sports Month next month? Interestingly, so of course, we're going through the appropriations process in Congress right now. And one of our goals has been to make sure that we are doing our part um, to make sure Congress is focused on battling against chronic wasting disease. Uh, and so we, we were working with uh, members on both sides of the aisle uh, uh, to talk about this issue. And, and Congress is, uh, has dedicated uh, $10 million so far uh, to studying uh, not just chronic wasting disease and the patterns of this disease that's devastating, you know, uh, servants across America, uh, but also looking at ways to to battle back against it and ways to defeat this this disease, uh, so it's not devastating our wild animal populations. Uh, this is a disease that's uh, you know it's 
uh, terrible. I mean, just to see the images of, of uh, deer or elk that are suffering from this, uh, they die very slow and, and painful death. Um, and it's uh, and it's ravaging the herbs. So we're encouraged to see that, you know, that is happening. Um, as far as the, the firearm sales and the ammunition sales, it's uh, everyone's been watching it. They've been going through the roof. But one of the things that uh, is one of the products of that is uh, there's more money now flowing into the Piven Robertson Fund uh, because the excise tax is paid by the manufacturers uh, than we've seen in years. I mean, it's just it's exponential. We are probably on the cusp of breaking 14 billion dollars uh, in the life of this uh, of this Pittman Robertson Fund. And that's just the Pittman Robertson side of it. That's not the Dingle Johnson and all the fishing and all the other stuff. This is just the Pittman Robertson side that's paid by the manufacturers of, of firearms and ammunition. And that fund's been you know, alive since 1937, and we're getting ready to crack over $14 billion. That's, that money's apportioned back to the states in a, in a fairly complex uh, formula, but based upon you know uh, population and, and license sales and, and a few other factors. But that's what's going back to help build new shooting ranges, public shooting ranges. It's, it's uh, allowing for conservation of, of not just the animals we hunt and, and the animals that we you know we rely upon for food, uh, but it also is for those animals that we may never hunt. Uh, you know, uh, I was recently on a bear den study in Connecticut. You cannot hunt black bear in Connecticut, but Pittman Robertson dollars are paying for the serums that uh, that they use to dart the bears. It's paying for the radio collar that they put on the bears. It's paying for the data that's collected when they weigh the cubs. Uh, and to be able to track those animals, to tag them and then follow them through their life to see how the population growth is happening. It pays for, you know, the, the recovery of the bald eagle, which is a great success story in America. I mean, this is an, uh, an animal that was on the endangered species list uh, when I was a child. And this now has been pulled off the endangered species list and the threatened species list to the point where the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service doesn't really track the population anymore because they're doing so well. Um, so, you know, these are things that we can be very proud of when it comes to the to the you know, conservation efforts in America that are you know, brought to uh, brought to not just the hunters, but to everyone who enjoys the outdoors because of the firearm industry. That's a good update. Thank you for cluing me in on that. And then suppressors. Do we I think there was a hearing coming up or that had already passed recently. I know that's going to be a hurdle because we have an unfriendly administration that is not receptive to this. And if Chipman were to be coronated essentially into his role, that would be very difficult to see any movement on that. So uh, do we have an update on that? The suppressor yeah, so hearing? Th yeah, there's been bills that have been introduced both in the House and in the Senate. Uh, I don't expect that those bills will no. amount much in this Congress, uh, but it's important that these members continue to introduce this legislation. And sometimes it's important to understand that moving things through Congress can be a glacial move. That you know, picking up you know more and more sponsors each Congress and getting more attention for this uh, is is important, and that you got to continue to do that work. Uh, but when we're talking about suppressors, we're essentially talking about an accessory for a firearm. It does nothing but reduces the noise of a uh, of a firearm, uh, the explosion of that uh, that cartridge to a level that is not going to cause you instant permanent hearing loss. Um, where I live, uh, I'm able to use a, a suppressor for hunting, and I do it when I have the opportunity to do it. it. It makes the experience a whole lot more enjoyable. It reduces recoil, of course, reduces the noise, um, but it also allows for me to make safer, more ethical shots on those animals. If I have to do a follow-up shot, because that recoil is reduced, um, I'm able to get on that follow-up shot much quicker to make sure that the animal's going to 
uh, be harvested in a humane way. So, you know, we, we continue to encourage, uh, you know, members of Congress, both in the Senate and the House, to pursue this, uh, to make it easier. And it's important to understand, I mean, uh, in, in Europe, you can buy suppressors over the counter at the hardware store without a background check. And in fact, many European countries require the use of these uh, suppressors. So you're a much better uh, neighbor when it comes to your shooting sports or your hunting, yet you're not disturbing the public as much. Uh, we have a completely different and backward view of this because of the way it's been stigmatized in movies. Um, so it's uh, it's something that we continue to push and we continue to fight for. Uh, it'll probably be a play, though, that will be you know still several years in the coming. It'll take education, and I want to do my part. I've talked with some of the guys from Silencer Co. Actually, one of my contacts there came back to the organization, which is exciting. I've talked to the uh, PR director, and they may have me come out to the facility sometime in the future for like a media event, which would be really cool to help demystify suppressors. You know, I got my first deer using an air platform and a suppressor attached to it. I felt that it was a very comfortable experience, especially someone who flinches sometimes when I'm shooting larger firearms or long, more uh, kind of long rifles. Sometimes, you know, especially if you're a little rustier. So overall, I had a good experience with that. Do you guys tackle much of the uh, gray wolf in grizzly bear delisting from an NSSF standpoint? I can't recall, uh, but if you do, you can chime in. If not, we can move on to National Shooting Sports Month. But I, I keep seeing different headlines, and maybe personally, uh, you have some thoughts on this, that a lot of people are very alarmed that there's hunting seasons for wolves for management purposes, and we see the grizzly bear being held hostage by Threatened Endangered Species Act protections, unfortunately, although they have fully recovered in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. But if, if you want to chime in on that, I was curious about your thoughts. But if not, we can we can talk about shooting sports month. Yeah, NSSF has actually been supportive of efforts uh, in, in both with grizzly bears and with uh, the gray wolf to, to delist them. Um, we believe that when it comes to conservation efforts, it needs to be science that leads uh, you know, our decision-making on this and not uh, political agenda. And that's unfortunately what we're seeing happen with both the bears and with the wolves. Um, the wolves are uh, naturally, um, you know, repopulating some of their old spaces. Uh, we're seeing that they're, they're obviously moving down through Montana, through Wyoming, uh, and into Colorado. Uh, we were not supportive of Colorado's move to reintroduce wolves from Canada into Colorado. It was already happening. Um, so we, we don't think that some of the, the moves that are being made are necessarily the best informed moves. Uh, we believe that they're more politically driven from people who, who may not have uh, all the information that they need to make an informed decision or maybe making an emotional decision. Um, but we are, we are supportive of, of efforts to use uh, hunting as a conservation method. Uh, we believe that when you get people uh, invested and, and literally invested and the survival of a species, then that species tends to become more valued. Um, so if we look at the, you know, the idea of, uh, you know, when there was market hunting back in the United States in the early part of the 1900s, before we started to have some of these conservation laws, uh, you start to talk to some of the people, even, even when I was a young hunter, um, you know, it, the deer population wasn't nearly what it was, but because we put a value on that deer, um, you know, that became that much more important to make sure that we could make sure that species was able to propagate and, and flourish uh, to what we're able to enjoy now. Well, we should be able to do the same with the, with the grizzly bear. Um, you know, the Department of Interior under the Trump administration had made a, a really strong effort to try and get this done. And they were stymied by the courts, who uh, I think were probably making more emotional decisions uh, rather than science-based decisions. And we're seeing that happen 
uh, with both species, the gray wolf and, and the bear. But we really believe that as the biologist and the, and the science that should lead the effort on this and those, those decision-making uh, processes um, you know, are, are best left to those people who are, are uh, handling that data every day and, and not people who are coming in um, you know, from you know, hundreds or thousands of miles away and, and trying to impress upon uh, another state uh, an action that is unnecessary and actually counterproductive to the survival and the propagation of that species. It is so true. They are not playing on grounds of science. They're largely rooting on emotional appeals and politics, which they accuse conservationists who also support hunting as a method of control and management, which is really funny, a, a great tool in projection that they love to use. And I really think it's going to endanger the species that they claim to care about. And to me, it seems like they have a genuine disregard for the species. We've seen this all across the country in California with mountain lions who are especially vulnerable now because there is no active management season. They're dying due to ingesting rat poison. And I think they would have had fewer individuals killed or died due to, to ingesting such poison if there was an active management system or hunting season in place. And I think people are largely divorced from what locals have to deal with, with wolves being predatory onto their livestock, with bears similarly doing that. And I think they're not thinking in the best interest of these creatures in question because highly aggressive individuals in these populations, and you don't have to be a wildlife biologist, but those of us who've been very interested by this topic, and I've gotten very excited about this over the years and have tried to specialize in this as a journalist, we can understand that too many aggressive individuals in a herd or in a population actually is very bad to more vulnerable or weaker members of those populations. So highly aggressive bears will prey on other bears and same with wolves. So it, it's like they don't understand for the well-being of the animals either that you need certain management measures in place. Yeah, absolutely. Hunting is a management tool for, uh, and it's uh, it's embraced by biologists and conservationists across the country that, you know, this is a necessary tool to make sure the managing populations are uh, in keeping with, uh, you know, the the land upon which the, these these species live. There is a there is a certain carrying capacity mm -hmm. and we don't need that carrying capacity uh, of the of the ecosystem that they're living in. Uh, then you're going to start to have devastating effects on uh, on those animals. So, it, it, you know, the hunter plays a critical role. In, in making sure that the species are strong and that they are uh, survivable for generations to come. That's why you've always been really keen on participating in the Partner with a Payer program. I hope one year I get to do that and get to hang out with some little bear cubs. COVID killed that opportunity, unfortunately. But that's a good program, too, kind of showcasing that conservation dollars, PR dollars from guns and ammo, those who actually help bear den studies for one for one instance. And maybe there are similar efforts for monitoring wolves or monitoring some other big game predators as well. Yeah, it's it's that program actually is is to be able to highlight uh, some of the conservation efforts across the way. But I mean, it's Pittman Robertson dollars and, and partner with the payer program highlights, you know, the, the duck banding that happens. It, it's the it's, uh, you know, the quail habitat restoration and down in the southeast, especially in Georgia. It's, you know, it's it's putting up, uh, you know, um, you know, feed heel or, or, you know, some of the stuff that Delta Waterfowl does with uh, making sure that uh, ducks have nesting boxes. It's, it's, it's complementary efforts that, that uh, is fed back through the U.S. Fish and Wildlife to the uh, State Department of Natural Resources or wildlife agencies 
to be able to, uh, you know, continue those efforts. Uh, and, and these are the things that, that are keeping our, our wild areas wild. And we, we are glad that we're able to you know, play a key role in that. I don't think hikers and birders are going to be able to make up for the difference were PR dollars to dry up. And I think an unintended consequence of gun control, we've talked about this privately too. Obviously the second amendment is not about hunting, but if there is a connection you can draw between the two activities or uh, two principles more so um, is the fact that conservation funding will largely dry up if you pursue gun control policies, because those policies in effect restrict you from buying things legally and make it a lot harder. And, and those monies will dry up and there won't be that kind of continuation of funding that has really propelled conservation in this country to be the standard bearer across the world. So people have to be very careful about what they wish for with gun control, because that means ultimately undermining wetland conservation, habitat restoration efforts, hunters, education courses. People don't, don't see the unintended consequences and the implications that stem from that. No, it, it, and it, unfortunately, we've seen that play out in your home state of California. Yes. Uh, as, as the uh, gun policies have become more restrictive, we've seen less and less people buying gun licenses or buying hunting licenses. Mm-hmm. And so that, that translates down to, you know, the less people buying hunting licenses, the less money is going to be apportioned to those to those states uh, through Pittman Roberts. And so it, it has a spiraling effect. And unfortunately, it's uh, the 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 you know, the cows are coming home on that one. And it's, uh, it's, it's not something that we want to see. We want to see a healthy uh, level of hunters that are out in the woods. And we're, you know, we're very encouraged by what we saw over the past year. Um, you know, one of the byproducts of COVID was people were had more time on their hands and, and they wanted to make sure that they could get clean sources of food. Uh, and that meant that we're getting back onto the woods. So we saw in every state, the hunting license sales were up and we saw that people were going out. We saw the harvest numbers that were being reported back uh, through the various uh, hunting seasons were up. Uh, so we're very encouraged by that. And we hope that uh, that's, uh, that's a trend that continues and that people have re- either rediscovered that or discovered that now for the first time, uh, continue to participate in the years to come. I am encouraged by the f- initial findings that have come out on the surge in participants and the license sales. And I hope we do continue that. I will do my personal best to, to introduce new people more so on the fishing side, because I'm still new to hunting myself. And I think I can introduce people on the shooting sports side myself, since I am somewhat familiar now, I at least understand the basics and can instruct people on like how to hold a gun, how to employ different safety measures when handling, get the right directions, all the different basics there. And speaking of shooting sports, why don't we finish the conversation with August being National Shooting Sports Month. Unfortunately, we're not going to see that backing with this administration, but we did see it with the last administration, which was wonderful. But even in the absence of having a friendly administration, how is NSSF preparing for National Shooting Sports Month in the coming weeks? Yeah, so National Shooting Sports Month was generated by NSSF to uh, to kind of you know make sure that we had a reason to encourage you know people who have been lab shooters or or had been interested in the shooting sports but didn't have a way to, to kind of you know create a way for people to kind of get involved with it and it makes sense to do it in august we still got maybe a little bit of summer vacation time on your hands and it's right before the hunting season so it's time to start getting tuned back up uh you know uh early ducks will be coming to a lot of uh, a lot of the co- uh, country in uh, in september uh, of course, some of the uh, some of the states will be opening up their deer season starting in, in September. So we want to make sure people are, are tuned up and are, are accurate with their shots. Uh, and so, you know, National Shooting Sports Month has been a great way to do that. 
Um, despite the fact that, you know, we don't expect that this administration will, will support National Security Sports Month, uh, we're very encouraged because uh, there are quite a few governors who are very supportive of that. And we've already seen, uh, you know, several governors sign proclamations uh, to celebrate National Shooting Sports Month in their state and the contributions that the, the industry and, and hunters and recreational shooters are making uh, to uh, to uh, recovering wildlife and, and conserving wildlife in those states. So really what it comes down to for National Shooting Sports Month is we want to encourage you to get back to the range. So we're working with ranges and retailers uh, to create different ways to whether that be a special day at the range, maybe that be special targets, maybe that be uh, special activities that they're able to host at these different ranges, whether it be a public shooting range or a private shooting range. Uh, to get people back out and to encourage people to go. And the easiest way that anybody can do this is, is something you had just talked about. Uh, so you've recently got into the shooting sports and, and you said that you know enough now that you can help teach somebody else. Well, we all know somebody who probably has a question about, you know, the shooting sports. And I've never taken anybody to a gun range and they haven't walked away with a big smile on their face because it's just satisfying when you know you can master that skill. And it just takes just a little bit of practice, but with a little bit of concentration on, on the safety aspects, uh, start out with an achievable goal and then make sure that you're not trying to shoot a thousand yards. Maybe maybe bring the target in a little bit closer, start to get at it, or or you get out onto the sporting clays range and swing that shotgun and try to hit that, uh, that clay pigeon. Um, we're encouraging everybody to kind of get out there. And if, you, and if you're uh, someone who is a gun owner and somebody who does enjoy the shooting sports, we encourage you to take somebody out with you. Grow somebody else just like you. Get out to the range and teach somebody else the shooting sports. And remember the fact that we all came into this not knowing anything at, at one point or another as well. Whether we started you know, shooting with our mom and dad when we were young or we came into this as a teenager or maybe you know, you learned about shooting when you served in the military or, or you're an adult onset hunter or adult onset recreational shooter. Uh, you, we all came into this with a lot of questions. So uh, I would encourage people to be open to answering those questions and, and make that invitation because a lot of people just don't know where they can get started or how to get started. So be the person who says, Hey, listen, I'm going to go to the range this weekend. Would you want to go with me? Uh, I have I have a lot of fun introducing people to the shooting sports and watching them become excited about uh, learning how to shoot and shoot safely. Shot show. Shot show is going to be resuming in January. Yes. Yes. And uh, expanding. Correct. Yeah, so SHOT Show planning is well underway. Uh, the uh, nearly all the space has been uh, has been spoken for a SHOT Show. They're they're just tidying up some of the smaller details, uh, and the SHOT uh, floor plan is expanding. So what we intended to do last year, we're going to be able to do this year. Uh, unfortunately, we had to cancel the show because of because uh, of COVID restrictions, uh, but we will be expanding over to Caesar's Forum. So there'll be a little sky bridge that takes you across from from the Sands to Caesar's Forum, and we'll be able to have uh, expanded floor space, nearly double uh, what we've had now. So uh, I always told people before coming to Shot Show, make sure you have a plan because you're not going to be able to see everything. I think we estimated before uh, that if you tried to visit every booth for every day Shot Show was open, you would be able to. Spend and I think less than 11 minutes at every booth. But yeah, I think with this expansion, it's going to make it even more difficult. But it, it is something we've been working to try to do because we had a backlog of people who were trying to get into SHOT Show. And it's a three to five year wait list that was happening. And that wasn't serving our members or the people who wanted to, to display in SHOT Show 
the way we wanted to be able to do that. So we're excited that we're able to accommodate uh, much more uh, uh, floor space. We're going to be able to do that in a, in a way that's going to be safe when people have concerns about things like COVID. We'll have expanded uh, hallways. We're going to get rid of some of those little dead ends that we used to have in the middle of the floor. Um, so we're, you know, we're excited about the show. And I, th- I think that there's going to be a lot of opportunity. I think that there's a hunger for people who, even though people had gone to SHOT Show and it was one of those, ah, oh, it's going to be so many people at SHOT Show. It's going to be long days. I think what we're seeing this past year is, is that people kind of miss it. They miss being able to get together uh, with the folks that they know in the industry. As big as this industry seems, it really is small and it is a big family and everybody kind of knows everybody. And this is the one way that we're able to kind of all get back together under the same roof and, and be able to work together. Because while these competitors, while these companies are competitors, while Smith & Wesson is, is fighting for the same market that Mossberg is fighting for, that Six Hours is fighting for, um, we're all in this together. We all realize as the manufacturers who are members of the National Shooting Sports Foundation, uh, they realize that you know we have to work together to make sure that we preserve this industry, protect this industry, and grow the industry. Uh, and that way, it's healthy and vibrant for for Americans in the future. We want our kids to be able to enjoy the same things down the road. So we're very excited that Shot Show is is kind of our flagship event to do that. We're, we're you know really looking forward to getting back out there and, and doing what we do best. I'm so excited to make my return after a three year absence, and. I get to go, I believe, I think with my new responsibilities with POMA as a board of director, I think they want us to attend. I think it's required as part of our board meeting duties. So I will be there this year. So I'm excited after taking a little pause. Sometimes you need to take a little pause and recharge and COVID happening didn't certainly help there. But I am so excited. I remember seeing the news about the expanded floor plans. That's going to be great for getting your steps in. I think it's a great avenue for reconnecting with people, meeting new contacts, and it really is a great show. So if people listening are curious and they want to attend, it is a selective process and it's obviously not open to the public. It's through industry related access only. If you're press, you can apply and qualify for that if you meet the criteria, but it is a great show. It makes a lot of people jealous and it's probably one of the best trade conferences I've ever been to. I always like going, so I'm excited that I'm coming again. We look forward to having you out there. It's always a fun time. Mark, where could people connect with you, learn more about NSSF's challenges to the different gun control efforts happening? How can they follow NSSF? How can they participate in National Shooting Sports Month? Drop all the different appropriate links. Yeah, so the first and the easiest place is to go to nssf.org. Everything is kind of linked off of that hub there. You can find uh, information from National Shooting Sports Month from there. You know, you can also learn about uh, our, our Plus One campaign from there, and that's the whole idea that we spoke of, of growing new shooters and growing new hunters. And there's links to, to where to hunt and where to shoot and how to get started if you're looking for a range or if you're looking how to get started on hunting. It's everything from here's the equipment that you'll probably need to here's a recipe on how to cook could be the wild animal that you've harvested. Uh, so we're very excited about those things. Uh, we also have uh, our Real Solutions campaign. If you want to go to nssfrealsolutions.org, uh, that lists the campaigns that uh, that we're very proud to partner two of these with the, with the ATF to make sure that we're keeping firearms out of the hands of those who should never have them. Uh, our Project Child Safe campaign, our, our Fixed Nicks campaign, uh, our partnerships that we have with the Department of Defense and the uh, food, uh, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to make sure that we're having that brave conversation with someone who may be suffering through a mental health crisis. And maybe we can intervene before something tragic happens. Uh, We think that we have a responsibility to 
do that. And all that information can be found under there. Um, so we encourage everyone to go there. If you want to know what's happening as far as some of the legislative activities, you can click on uh, the media link that's there and, and you can go to the blogs and we're constantly updating what's happening uh, on our blogs uh, and you can see what's happening under our legislative tabs. Uh, not just in Congress, but also in some of the states. And we're continuing to fight some of these battles, not only to defend the industry, but sometimes to advance when we have the opportunity, advance the industry's uh, interests as well. So those are great resources. If you want to send a few of those to me, I'll link in the show notes to that as well. But I have, I'll be sure to incorporate that all into uh, the the show notes and, and get everyone factored in that way. Thank you again, Mark, for coming on. I always appreciate your insight. I hope I get to see you sometime in person very soon since we are still somewhat neighbors <laughs> here in Northern Virginia. And I wish you guys good luck in the different lawsuits and keep me posted on how I can help with coverage and, and expose that better. Always. Gabrielle, it's always such a pleasure to talk to you. And it's always a, a joy to talk to somebody who has such a passion for the shooting sports and for hunting and, and to, to see uh, somebody who is, you know, so excited about not just being introduced and growing through it, but to, to watch you grow from being a novice at some of the things that you're doing to now becoming someone who's seasoned and, and is excited about introducing others to it as well. So, uh, you know, thanks for, for, thanks for letting us be part of that journey that you've been on too. So we're very excited. Thank you for listening to the show. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure you're following us on your preferred podcast player. We like to recommend Apple Podcasts because Apple is where most of our listeners hails from so if you head over to apple subscribe comb through some episodes and leave us reviews we'd be more than appreciative of your support in that manner follow us on facebook instagram and twitter to never miss a beat nor a guest announcement and you can connect with me personally on my social media feeds all of the facebook twitter and instagram links that i have are all denoted by blue check marks really easy to find me so engage with me there i'd love to hear your thoughts if you want to recommend yourself for the show as a prospective guest i'm all ears to hear and sift through different inquiries stay tuned for the next episode appreciate you listening